Hello. The southeast corner of Saskatchewan is a special place for the province birdwise. Several species of of birds, including chimney swift, eastern bluebird, eastern wood peewee, black-headed grosbeak, yellow-breasted chat, and dick thistle are almost abundant down there. I signed up for a couple of uh, breeding bird atlas squares there, 10 by 10 kilometer squares where I would attempt to census the bird life within them. I drove to my first square, a block south of Carnduff butting up against the American border. The Surus River Valley bisected it, and I was excited about what birds I might see there. I found a singing male orchard oriole, followed by a turkey vulture nesting in an abandoned schoolhouse, and then not far down the road, a grasshopper sparrow sang his insect-like buzz from a barbed wire fence. Along the wooded river valley, an eastern bluebird landed on a fence post, his rusty brown sides contrasting his sky-blue top. It had been a great day of birding, despite the wind's best efforts. The valley had softened its gustiness, and I was able to make out most of the bird songs I heard when I stopped. I neared the end of the valley. The road curved upwards, leading me to the cultivated fields above. I stopped one last time and listened for anything that might be singing in the ash grove. I swung my head up, looking for the source of the song. It was musical and burry. Scarlet Tanager? No, too burry. Oh, oh my gosh, Summer Tanager? No, not at all fast enough. Oh, wait, could it be a yellow-throated vireo? Earlier that morning, on the way to my atlas square, I had stopped at a lake where a yellow-throated vireo had been seen a few days prior. Several different vireos breed in Saskatchewan. Warbling, red-eyed, blue-headed, Philadelphia. But the most unusual and uncommon, by a long shot, is the yellow-throated vireo. They're a sparrow-sized bird, white on the bottom, greenish on the top, and a bright yellow wash on their throat. They spend their time high in treetops, and they've only been confirmed nesting in Saskatchewan once before. I had never seen them on the prairies, so I had stopped en route in the hopes of seeing one. I heard a single red-eyed and a pair of warbling vireos, but no yellow-throated. I searched the top of the ash tree for the bird. There! A flash of movement. I focused my binoculars onto a small bird with a yellowish front. Unquestionably, a yellow-throated vireo. But then, unexpectedly, a second one came into view. A pair! As I watched them, I realized that they were near a nest. A nest hanging from a small branch. Exactly the way vireos tend to build their nests. It's difficult to describe the elation that I felt finding this. I'll return in a week or so and see if the pair are still there and if they're using the nest. If they are, it'll be only the second time breeding by this species has been confirmed in the province. I can hardly wait. Let's get started.
You are listening to The Prairie Naturalist, Saskatchewan's nature radio show, here on 91.3 FM, CJTR, Regina Community Radio. I am your host, Gabriel Foley. This week, Ellie Knight joins me on the show. Besides being a personal hero of mine, Ellie is the program manager for Wild Research's Nightjar Survey Program and a PhD candidate at the University of Alberta, where she studies habitat use by common nighthawks. Ellie will tell us about wild research, why surveys for night jars are important, as well as more specifics about what her research is about. But first, last week on the program, Leanne Latremieux, Saskatchewan Breeding Bird Atlas Coordinator for Bird Studies Canada, joined me on the program. The Breeding Bird Atlas is a five-year citizen science project to estimate the relative abundance and distribution of birds that breed in Saskatchewan. Leanne told us about why it's important and what they've found so far, and why your help is critical to completing the project. If you missed it, you can find a link to the episode on the Prairie Naturalist Facebook page or on Twitter at PR Naturalist. The Prairie Naturalist can be heard on the radio at 91.3 FM in Regina, on the web at cjtr.ca, on Access Television Channel 700, on SaskTel Max Channel 806, and on your smartphone if you download the CJTR app. The Prairie Naturalist is also rebroadcast on Sundays at 7.30 in the evening and on Wednesdays at 12.30 during the lunch hour. Now for the nature list. We have a few upcoming events here in Saskatchewan. It is going to be Native Prairie Appreciation Week next week, June 16th to the 22nd, all across the province. And the Saskatchewan Prairie Conservation Action Plan, or PCAP, has organized a variety of activities online and in Moose Jaw, Regina, and Swift Current to celebrate Native Prairie Appreciation Week. If you want to find out more about that, go to PCAP's website. So that's Prairie Conservation Action Plan. They have some neat stuff planned. There will be a Native Prairie Pasture Tour on June 22nd. This is going to be down in the Caledonia Elmsthorpe Community Pasture from 4 to 9 p.m. And I will be along on that one, uh, showing folks what kind of birds are down there on the pasture. On July 6th in Avonlea, uh, which is right next door to that pasture, actually, the Native Plant Society of Saskatchewan is hosting a botanizing the badlands event and you can join them uh, july 6th spotting wildflowers in the avonlea badlands on june 20th in regina at the george bothwell branch library from 7 to 8 p.m there is going to be a workshop on camping basics for newcomers to to canada which i think is really neat um nature saskatchewan spring meet that is going to be happening uh, June 14th to 16th, so that's this weekend, in East End. They're going to have a talk by Katie Doak Sawatsky, who runs the Prairie Commons Project. And there will be a tour of the Frenchman River Valley and Bluebird Banding. You can register for that at naturesask.ca. To see what else is happening around the province for nature and environmental events, check out ecofriendlysask.ca.
Weather is warm. Insects are out. Breed birds are breeding, and people are counting them. Last week we talked about surveys to do this with, and before that we discussed methods that help provide better population estimates for hard to detect birds such as owls or nightjars. This week we will be discussing nightjar surveys, how they work, and what sort of research is underway with nightjars. Ellie Knight is the program manager of the Nightjar Survey Program for the nonprofit Conservation Group Wild Research, and she's a PhD candidate at the University of Edmonton. And she joins me on the line from Edmonton. Welcome to the Prairie Naturalist, Ellie. Ellie, are you there? I think I lost the call. All right. Well, I'm going to tell you another story while I try to get her back. Uh, today, I was out walking around on... Uh, oh, boy. I was walking around on some native prairie, and I had uh, chestnut-colored longspurs flying all the way around me. They, when you're When you're near their territory, a lot of birds will just fly off out of the way. But chestnut-colored longspurs, they tend to like to form a, a circle around you. And uh, so, walking along, and I thought I saw a female flush from out of underneath this, this really small little shrub, barely even a shrub. Went over there to see if maybe there might be a nest. And sure enough, there was. There were four fuzzy, downy little chicks in there. And as soon as they saw me poke my head over top of this little shrub, uh, they opened their mouths up expecting Mom to be there. So... I backed out as quickly as I could and uh, let Mom get back to her job. Hi, Ellie. Are you there? How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Sorry about that. Oh, no worries. Um, okay. So can you tell me who is Wild Research and what exactly it is that they do? local nonprofit out of actually Vancouver um, and it's a fairly small nonprofit organization um, it's been active for about 10 years now um, and they run citizen uh, science programs that uh, train the community about how to contribute to conservation science um, and so they have a few programs um, one of which is the Iona Island Bird Observatory and then um, one of the other main programs is the Wild Research Chart Survey which is the program that I manage Okay, now, what is a night jar? <laughs> that is a great question. So a night jar is a, uh, one of a, a family of birds uh, called the Capramulgids. And they are one of our oldest forms of birds. So they're way down at the base of the phylogenetic tree. And they're, they're an interesting group of birds. They're uh, all nocturnal. And they rely really heavily on... Uh, camouflage to disguise themselves during the day. Um, so all the members of this family uh, look like leaves or branches. Um, but at night, they they um, wake up and they fly around and they eat uh, aerial insects. Um, so they'll either fly up from a single place and catch insects in their huge mouths, or we have several species uh, called the night hawks, 
which actually fly around a lot like a big nighttime swallow and uh, and they forage for aerial insects on the wing. And we have we have night jars in Saskatchewan. Uh, we also have night hawks. Uh, is there a difference between the two of these birds? Yeah, good. Another good question. So, nightjars refers to the family. So there are two. No, there are three species of nightjar in uh, Saskatchewan, and the nighthawks are uh, one of those species. So the nighthawks are sort of like a subgroup within the nightjar family. We have a few nighthawk species in uh, in the Western Hemisphere, uh, but only one here in Canada, which is the common nighthawk. And their name is a bit misleading. They're not actually hawks at all, right? It's super misleading. And, and in fact, even the night part is a little bit misleading. So they're not a hawk. They're a night jar, like we talked about. Um, hawking is thought to maybe refer more to the way that they forage. So they're one of those big nighttime swallows where they fly around and, and eat. Um, but the night component of their name is, is not particularly accurate either because the, the night hawks are, are more of a crepuscular group compared to the rest of the nightjars. So they're a little bit more active closer to dusk and dawn than the rest of the nightjars, which are more truly nocturnal. So why do nightjars need a survey targeted just for them? Why can't you combine it for other birds? Mm-hmm. So because these species are nocturnal, they're not actually detected very often during, you know, our more typical dawn surveys, like the breeding bird survey or, you know, the folks are going out for atlasing at dawn. Often these birds are there, especially common nighthawks, which are quite common. That part of the name is true. Um, but they're not detected. They're not observed on those surveys. And so that, that gives us what we call it, like a, a false negative in our data, where the species was actually there. It's actually using that area. But we didn't detect it, and we can't include it when we try and understand what sort of landscape these species use um, because we have those false negatives in this data. So you do get them occasionally on other surveys, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So there, there are detections of the bird out there. Are, are you able to just use statistics to kind of take that small sample size and boost it or extrapolate it or... Um, do you really need to have this uh, specific survey to find just this bird? Yeah, so that's something we've we've actually spent the last couple of years trying to figure out. So I've been working with some folks at Environment Climate Change Canada um, to sort of compare our sort of our main our sort of meat and potatoes of, of bird monitoring in Canada, which is our breeding bird survey, and compare it to this targeted nightjar survey and figure out, okay, so, you know, how much do we actually use this targeted survey, or is the breeding bird survey sufficient? And so what we found is that, you know, we do think this targeted survey is important. Um, So we're, you know, for nighthawks, for example, we're detecting, you know, I think it's, oh gosh, it's something like 20 times more birds on the targeted survey um, than the the breeding bird survey. Um, But for some of these other more nocturnal species, so for common poor wolves, um, for example, which are present in British Columbia, Alberta, and then uh, the southeastern portion of Saskatchewan, there are three detections of common poor wolves in the entire breeding bird survey. <laughs> so basically none. <laughs> yeah, functionally none. I mean, and those three detections, they're just not able to tell us anything about the habitat that this species uses, and they're certainly not sufficient for population monitoring. And so that that species has actually been assessed as data deficient since 1997. 
Um, and wow. how that's something we're hoping to change with this targeted survey is to start to understand what their populations are actually doing. And that being said, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 continue. I was just going to say, that being said, we did also use our data to run some simulations, and it, it does look like the breeding bird survey may be picking up an accurate signal in the population trend, hmm. uh, at least for common nighthawks. Um, but it's high, it, in the simulations, it's highly variable how accurate that trend could be. And so what, what we're advocating for is actually um, having both surveys present, but combining the data between the two and uh, that gives us the greatest ability to monitor populations and also to, to do habitat uh, modeling as well. So uh, nighthawks, whippoorwills, and a whole bunch of other birds that eat insects while they're flying, they're all declining. Um, mm. can, you, can you tell me a little bit about why that is? Yeah, so it's another great question. Um, so the whole, yeah, the whole guild, which we refer to as the aerial insectivore, uh, are declining, or at least, you know, based on the breeding bird survey data that we do have, all those species are declining. Um, and so there are a lot of hypothesized mechanisms about what's driving those declines. Um, it probably varies between species, at least that's what we've been able to tell from comparative work done uh, between swallow species. But a lot of those hypothesized mechanisms are associated with their food source. I mean, the whole guild is declining, and so um, the likelihood that it's associated with aerial insect populations is, is fairly high. Um, and so, you know, there, there are hypothesized mechanisms associated with pesticide use, um, potentially with what we call a phenological mismatch. So um, the idea that insect populations are emerging earlier due to advances in climate and climate change but that our migratory birds are unable to gauge that change in peak abundance and so their breeding season is no longer properly matched and so we hmm. might be seeing declines in breeding success or survival of those species um, but what's complicated about about understanding these species is that they're all migratory and so they could be encountering environmental conditions anywhere across their annual cycle that could be contributing to those declines. So, you know, it could be here on the breeding grounds in Canada and in Saskatchewan. It, you know, it could be on migration or it could be on the wintering grounds as well. And so teasing that annual cycle apart um, for different species is also a really important part of understanding those declines. And you have done some work on that annual cycle, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for, for common nighthawks, which is, um, actually, I think, you know, among the, among the nocturnal aerial insectivores is a great um, model species to try and understand some of these declines because they have one of the largest breeding ranges in North America. So they breed all the way up into the Yukon and the North Coast Territories and all the way down into actually Panama. Um, really, really large breeding range. And so what we've done is, is put GPS tags out on, on nighthawks across that breeding range and we're looking at differences in the conditions that they do experience across that annual cycle and seeing if those differences in, in those conditions could explain some of the differences in population trends that we see on the breeding ground. So we do have uh, a couple populations in North America that, you know, to the best of our ability, do seem to actually be increasing or at least not declining. And so the conditions that those birds are experiencing um, could be different from the conditions that the birds that are that are declining quite state, uh, quite rapidly, um, and so understanding those differences um, might help us tease apart those mechanisms of decline. 
So is this what your PhD research is is on? Yeah, so this is a component of my PhD research. My PhD um, sort of looks at uh, novel tools for understanding common night hawk uh, conservation, um, primarily on the breeding grounds, but then also across the animal cycle. So I also use sound to study um, the species uh, here in the breeding grounds, and especially in the boreal forest where we've learned recently, and in a large part thanks to the work that you did for your master's thesis, but there's actually a, a lot of common night hawks in the boreal forest. Um, and so understanding the types of habitat that they need in the boreal forest is, is also a really important component of conservation. So for these surveys uh, that Wild Research is doing, you've got volunteers going out and doing them uh, one night a year. Um, but for your research, a lot of it is using automated recorders, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So automated recorders work really well for common nighthawks and for the other uh, nighthawk species as well for a couple of reasons. Um, one, that these species are active at night, and so um, you know, in a lot of remote areas, like the Wild Research Nitro Survey is a roadside survey. So those are areas that are relatively safe to access um, at dusk. But, you know, going into off-road areas, you know, deep into the bush uh, can be kind of dangerous at night. And so these autonomous recording units um, can be scheduled to, to record at any time of day or night. And so we go out and we put them out during the day and then they record at night. Um, the other reason that they work really well for nocturnal species is because these species are vocalizing at a time of day when there's not a lot else going on. We know the dawn chorus can be super, super loud and busy and sometimes hard to pick out individual birds during or individual species, but the nitrates are calling at night when there's, you know, maybe there's some frogs, but there's not a lot else uh, vocalizing, and so it, um, it picks these species up really nicely. So are you able to tell, I mean, can you can you count how many are there? Can you can you learn anything more about the birds, or is it just presence absence, whether the the bird is there or not there? Mm, that's a tricky question. Um, that's a, that is one of the current um, disadvantages of, of this autonomous recording technology is, is separating out individuals. Um, so. I personally can count the number of birds on a recording, but I've been doing this a long time, um, and I, I know the species really well. Um, but it's very time intensive, so we are working on approaches that could maybe help us um, figure out how many birds there are. There are other species where you know the number of calls that they make it is associated with the number of, of individuals, and so you can extrapolate um, abundance from, um, from the number of calls. It works really well for yellow rails, for example. Hmm. But for common nighthawks, it's a little bit more complicated, and so that's something that we're still working on. But the citizen science survey is has that's a big advantage of the citizen science survey of using human observers, is that we can go out and actually count how many birds and follow each individual bird during an observation period, and that kind of high resolution data can be really valuable. So, can you walk me through a point count for the for the citizen science? Survey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What would a volunteer be yeah. doing when they when they sign up for this? Yeah, good question. Okay, so um, we use the we use the breeding bird survey rope framework actually for the Wild Research Nature Survey, um, and that has in part because it allows us to directly compare the two projects the way that we've done. Um, but it's also just nice because it's an existing it's an existing framework, and so you know if people have breeding bird survey ropes already, we really encourage them to also adopt that nature survey. Um, we don't do all 50 stops. 
the way that the breeding birds get rated. So we actually only do 12, and that's to kind of cover the dusk into night period. And we uh, we use every second stop on a breeding bird survey route. So the stops are 1.6 kilometers apart instead of 800 meters. And that's because nitrates can just, they can be heard a lot farther than a lot of songbird species. So what a volunteer does is they get, you know, they sign up for a route and then they go out and they start their survey at the first stop on their route and at exactly a half hour before sunset. And at each of their survey stops, they sit and they listen passively for six minutes. And during that six minute period, if they detect any nightjar, um, they write down how they detected that nightjar in each of the six minutes of the survey. So for nightboxes is particularly important because they actually have two different types of sounds that they make. So they make a call, they make a vocalization, which sounds like peet, peet, peet. Um, <laughs> but, but they also do this really neat mechanical sound, which is an aerial display. And so the they do this big, steep aerial dive, and at the bottom of that dive, they bend um, their wingtips down, and as, as the air rushes through those wingtips, it makes a sort of a vroom sound. And we call we call that sound a wing boom. Um, and the two sounds mean different things. Um, and so, recording how you detect um, how you detect a nightjar, whether it's a wing boom or it's a call, or whether you just saw it, it was making any sounds. Those are really important um, details as part of the survey. So if Oh, go ahead. No, continue. No, oh, just once that six minutes is over, then you have to take some notes on you know, whether there were any cars going by, how much cloud there is, how windy it is, and then you move on to your next stop. And so the whole thing usually takes about an hour to and a half to two hours to complete. So if folks want to get involved with this, how can they how can they sign up? Yeah, so we have an online sign up platform, and it's uh, at www.nightjar. .ca, so it's N-I-G-H-T-J-A-R dot C-A. Pretty simple. Um, and that, uh, when you go to that website, um, you'll see a map, and a map of Canada, and it has all sorts of squiggly blue and yellow lines on it. And each of those lines is a survey route. Um, so the blue routes are, uh-oh, I'm going to get this backwards, aren't I? The blue routes are available, and the yellow are taken. Am I getting that right, Gabe? I think blue roots are taken and yellow roots are available. But okay. I yeah. could also be mi- mixing that up. No, you're right. <laughs> There's a legend. There is a legend. <laughs> Don't have to take my word for it. But the yellow routes are available. And so you can zoom into you know the area of interest where you might want to survey and find a yellow route. Uh, and then if you just hover your cursor over it, uh, a little box will pop up and it says, you know, this, you know, the name of this route is available if you'd like to adopt it, click here. And then you just click that link and it'll walk you through the steps of signing up for an account on our atlas and uh, adopting that route. And then as soon as you drop that route, you'll have your regional coordinator, which in Saskatchewan is you, <laughs> um, <laughs> will reach out and say, hey, welcome to the program. Here are the next steps for your survey. Thank you so much, Ellie. We're going to have to leave it there. I really Thank appreciate you, you coming on the show. Awesome. I enjoyed it. Thank <laughs> you so much. All right. Okay. Bye. I've been speaking with Ellie Knight, PhD candidate at the University of Alberta and program manager with Wild Research. That brings us to the end of the show today. My thanks to Ellie Knight for joining me here. If you have comments or questions about what you've heard or if you missed last week's show, You can find more on Facebook at The Prairie Naturalist or on Twitter at The PR Naturalist. This has been The Prairie Naturalist on 91.3 FM, 
CJTR, Regina Community Radio. I'm your host, Gabriel Foley. Thank you for listening.